Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points and miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Just a warning, this episode contains hits, slaps, holds, and strong content. You want history? We're going to give it to you. But this ain't some boring history show you want to play at night to go to sleep. No, this history is going to blow your face off because we are the greatest podcast tag team in the world! Hey, Phyllis. Hey, Leah. <laughs> so, I'm just taking a wild guess here that we're going to be talking about pro wrestling today. Uh, you're good. I mean, uh, you know, you 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 are a part of the greatest podcast tag team in the world. So, I figured, okay. you know, you would get it. Um, and I wanted to figure out why there are so many Canadians in pro wrestling and to see if history can explain to us how and why that happened. Okay, good. I mean... We haven't covered a lot of sports on this show, so, you know, why not? That being said, is it even considered a sport? Because I don't want to ruin this for you, but it's not well, real. Okay, not well, real. Th- thank you. Well, I guess episode over. No, um, I figured that out, but it is a good question. I have so many questions. Great. Well, we have a pro wrestling expert and a super fan to help us out. Hi, I'm Nug Nargang, and I not only love wrestling, but worked in wrestling. Still do uh, work in wrestling, and I really enjoy it. Nug lives in Markham, Ontario, and among other things, is an actor, an improviser, and one of the former hosts of the WWE Aftermath on Sportsnet. They call it sports entertainment, and I totally agree, because it's both things, and it's not 100% of each one. It is entertainment designed to look like a sport. There's a referee. There are rules. You know, there are entrances and exits like a big time boxing fight or like a UFC thing. But also guys do stuff in these matches that you couldn't do in a boxing match that you can't do. You know, and also I'm wearing feathers or a tie dyed outfit or a crazy mask. So it's the, the entertainment value is mixed in with the sports, the sport aspect. A lot of sports journalists don't consider it a sport, and most pro wrestlers will say that too. It's live stunts, it's storylines, and a business. This hybrid form of entertainment meets sports has been around for decades and decades, and it has a huge audience. I know there is the kind of formalized wrestling, and then you have pro wrestling, so how did they separate? Well, one side of wrestling is the sport you would see in the Olympics. And then the entertainment version is the pro wrestling, you know, the one that you would see in live events or through the WWE. Okay, gotcha. And it seems like wrestling was a thing people started doing right away, you know, as soon as humans could. Hand-to-hand combat was big in the days before weapons were easily accessible. And there are accounts of ancient cultures all over the world who were wrestling. 
One of the first documented competitions was written in the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's one of the oldest pieces of writing in existence, and it's a collection of Mesopotamian stories and poems. Indigenous people across the Americas were doing it, and, you know, it was happening all over Africa and India. Persian, Celtic, and Japanese people were also recording early wrestling matches. And, of course, the ancient Greeks, you know, during the Olympics. Um, Yeah, it was one of the first competitive sports. And um, fun fact early Olympic wrestling matches happened in the nude and the competitors covered themselves in olive oil. Oh, I wonder if that drew more crowds or way less crowds. Well, I, I think it depended on how much squatting was involved in a match <laughs> or, or right. you know, on who was wrestling. <laughs> right, right. So the dawn of humanity is about fighting, basically. It's our common link. Specific cultures had their own practices and regulations, but they all followed the basic rule. Whoever physically dominates the other wins. Then someone at some point decides to, like, up the stakes with some makeup and spandex, and that's how we got pro wrestling? (laughs) Yes. The style that Canadians watch now has its roots in carnivals and traveling shows that would feature different spectacles like fire eaters, animals, magicians, and wrestlers. The wrestlers in these shows popularized a more freestyle technique and the rule that pinning your opponent's shoulders to the mat was a way of scoring or a way to win the match. So what were these shows like? A lot of sideshows would have one or two strongmen who they toured with, and they might have a pre-planned idea of who would win. You know, they, they, they had to perform in show after show, so they planned it out so that they didn't get hurt badly. Right. The carnies, uh, the guys who used to work in these sideshows and circuses, they would promote the shows. And carnies established a lot of the terms and practices that are still used today in pro wrestling. Oh, interesting. Okay, so what are these terms? Give me a couple. Let's, let's hear them. A baby face is the hero or good character. The heel is the villain. A hooker was a person who was a really good wrestler that could take someone down in a minute or two. A plant was the person that was used in the audience and either part of the show or in on the show, but the audience didn't know. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, that's still a really common term nowadays. And the other term, maybe the most important, is the kayfabe, which Nug explained. So kayfabe is a carny term, and they think it means fake. It's kind of from the old carnival days. But it's basically the Santa Claus of uh, professional wrestling. It's like good guys and good guys are friends. Bad guys and bad guys are friends. You don't like each other, but don't even be seen talking to each other in front of the public. We have to keep this up. We have to keep up the conceit that this is real. So it's the whole idea that wrestling is real for the people who still think it's real. In the early Carney days, it was about making sure that the audience believed that the match was real. Kayfabe was a secret. It was a show, but to keep up appearances, it was agreed, like, you're not going to be seen sharing fries after the performance since <laughs> people just paid a nickel to see you beat the crap out of each other. I, I mean, right, yeah, you could you could share fries as long as no customer saw you share fries <laughs> in the back of the wagon while right. you're, you know, you're heading out under, you know, the, the, the cover of dusk. Right, right, right. Do you think they even had fries at carnivals back then? Because I'm wondering, like, the hot oil and stuff, like how you would do that. I don't want to imagine this fryless world you speak of. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe it was more popcorn. Anyway, we're getting off topic. 
the thing is that while, you know, they had some artifice to all of this, these matches were still rough, especially mm. the challenge matches where the carnivals would encourage people to come to the show, pay an entry fee, and challenge the strongman to a fight. The idea was that this is the toughest man around and maybe even the world, so come see if you can beat him. Oh, wow. Okay, so how long did this strongman like challenge the strongman thing kind of go on for? Well, from the 19th century to the early 20th century, wrestling shows had a performance aspect, but a lot of them were real bloody and the spectators often got involved. Here's a clip of Ernie Dusick. He talks about what happened the night he fought Quebecois wrestler Yvonne the Lion Robert. The night I wrestled Yvonne Robert for the Canadian uh, championship up there and beat him, And after I beat him, I walked out of the ring, and the doctor rushed me in the dressing room. I didn't know what it was, and I found out I had 29 stitches. He took 29 stitches on the outside and 19 stitches on the inside of my lower lip. He had cut clear through a spectator, cut clear through with a penknife through my lower lip. I still hold that scar. Wait a minute, now wait a minute. I want to identify where, I don't believe we told where this was. This was in Montreal. Montreal, Canada. So yeah, a spectator at one of the matches knifed a wrestler yikes yikes right in the mouth and you know what that feels like montreal in the 30s to me like even though i was not alive at that time and have i have no reference yeah you you weren't there how would you know (laughs) it feels like the depression it feels like people are drinking and they're going to wrestling and they're taking a pen knife in somebody's mouth you know like I'm making some huge generalizations about Quebec. The one thing that we know for sure is that wrestling was huge in Quebec. It was only second to hockey. And by this time, you know, wrestlers started inventing flashier moves for the crowds, which made it even more popular. The carnies from the early days started to call themselves promoters who would work specific areas of the country and build up a roster of wrestlers who would fight for titles. Parts of North America were all divvied up into territories. And this guy ran St. Louis, and this guy ran Cleveland, and this guy ran uh, Minneapolis. And there was a guy that ran Montreal, and somebody in Winnipeg, and somebody in Calgary, and somebody in Vancouver. There are all these little territories. And your territory would bring wrestlers in from other companies. And a bunch of the territories got together and became the National Wrestling Alliance. When the National Wrestling Alliance formed in 1930, everyone immediately started calling it the NWA. They didn't include Canadians at first, but eventually that changed. It's funny. I had no idea there was an NWA before the NWA, but I'm always learning things on this show. Okay. I know. And this started the trend of calling pro wrestling events and organizations by their acronyms. The NWA was supposed to support the promoters of each territory. So if someone tried to come in and, say, take over a territory from somebody else, there was an organization that could back them up. Early pro wrestling promoters were ruthless. So there was a lot of scamming and fighting. Some were affiliated with the mob. It was as rough as what was happening in the ring. Okay, so did that mean that Canadian wrestlers only wrestled in the Canadian territories or did they travel elsewhere, like including the U.S.? Traveling was a must and it was kind of advantageous because it meant that you could sort of play different roles. 
some wrestlers would be considered the good guy in Moncton and then would switch to being a bad guy in Iowa. <laughs> oh, you don't want to be a bad guy in Iowa. I love it. I love that. <laughs> One of the oldest wrestling clubs started in Toronto in the 1930s, uh, and it was called the Queensberry Athletics Club, which does not sound like a wrestling organization, it but it was. very, yeah, mm-hmm. fancy. No, it sounds like, a, like, I don't know, ladies who lunch. It does. Their name eventually changed when they moved into the newly renovated Maple Leaf Gardens in 1931. They then changed their name to Maple Leaf Wrestling. One of the biggest turning points for Maple Leaf Wrestling was in 1940 with the arrival of a wrestler named Whipper Billy Watson from East York, Ontario. The Whipper became a crowd favorite. Were you always a good guy uh, throughout your career? I always associate with you, you with being a good guy. Were you ever a rule breaker? Well, I think uh, the, the fans are the ones who decide who is their favorite and who isn't their favorite. You know, I, <clears throat> I was taught to wrestle, and that's exactly what I did. Uh, I always felt in Canada that I was sort of the home uh, representing Canada all the time, everywhere I went, and uh, I, I always seemed to be... Uh, uh, very favorable as far as the fans are concerned. Uh, of course, when you wrestle fellows like Gene Kaniski, you're uh, you automatically uh, are going to have people cheering you. Okay, so Whipper Billy Watson, who we heard there, is the good guy. Who was Gene Kaninsky? Kaninsky was a wrestler from Edmonton, and he and Whipper Billy Watson had this long-standing rivalry. It was seen as a good versus evil feud. The Whipper was the hero, and Kaninsky was the villain. Here's Gene Kaninsky in 1978 talking to CBC host Peter Zowski, who introduces him as the meanest man in Canada. I don't want to be disagreeable, but first of all, I'd like to straighten you out one thing, Zowski. I haven't even said that, your name, Kaninsky. They know who I am. They, they know don't know who you are. You're nothing. If Prime Minister Trudeau are to walk down the street, they'd say the guy with the crew cut is Kaninsky. I don't know who the other fellow is. But listen. <laughs> this is Gene Kaninsky, yeah, if you they didn't know. know. Does anybody know? Anybody know? <laughs> First of all, what about the night? Well, I want to talk about Toronto fans because didn't they set fire to the ring one night to get after you? Oh, Peter, I'll, I'll tell you something. Uh, picture is worth a thousand words. There's a film clip. Uh, uh, Dick Hutton was wrestling uh, Whipper Billy Watson. It's probably in the archives. This had to be about 1957, and uh, the chairs were flying. And, oh, it's just a, a horrible thing, situation. I just don't know why they want to desecrate the Lord's Temple because my body is the Lord's Temple. Therefore, I always have to protect uh, my temple. But oh, it, it was just one of those deals. But on numerous occasions, uh, they've tried to set me in fire and. Uh, mutilate my body and it, it, it is sometimes I wonder you know and as strange as it may seem I cannot stand crowds unless there are at wrestling matches <laughs> you, 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 how many fights did you have with Whipper Billy Watson the, the real hero of, of Toronto you know I'll tell you what I for example I wrestled him 14 consecutive Wednesdays in London Ontario and for the 14 times I wrestled him the matches never finished because they always end up in a riot, and we had 14 consecutive sellouts. Now you figure that one out. Okay, riots, fires, 
I mean, Toronto, that's a lot. My God. He's pretty funny, though. I mean, at that point, he would have already been retired, right? So I, I kind of love that he keeps this character going for the for the audience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's a good talker. And this becomes a big thing in pro wrestling as it evolves. It's, it's good if you can wrestle, but the people who can talk and, and really perform a character start getting really well-known. And the people who can do this, they become superstars because they can improvise. The invention of television took pro wrestling to a whole nother level. More on that after the break. Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points in miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote-unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. So wrestling started from humble beginnings, from the carnivals and the traveling shows, but slowly over time, it's becoming more and more sophisticated and now is on TV. Yes. Wrestling is one of the easiest things to put on TV, especially when TV first started, because not only did they need to fill time, like they needed something to air and you could plunk a camera and point it at the ring and that camera guy could walk away. And I think that's what kicked the entertainment value into gear. So wrestling is cheap to produce for TV, but it wasn't that interesting yet. If you look at footage of the guys from back in the day that were just wrestlers, like straight up wrestlers with no music and no fancy outfits, just a pair of black tights and let's come to the ring. They're some of the most boring interviews you've ever seen. And then somebody like Gorgeous George comes along who dyed his hair platinum blonde and had perfume sprayed on him and rose petals put in the ring. And everybody's like, what's what's this? Gorgeous George really pushed gender boundaries in this time. He was a wrestler who entered the arena in long silk robes, and he played up his beauty with feathered fans and a perfect set of blonde curls on his head. This was scandalous for a man in the 50s, so the audience loved to hate him. Right. So I'm assuming this really challenged gender norms at the time, if it's the 50s and he's coming out, you know, with with feathered things. Yeah. But nonetheless, he's considered to be one of the first superstars of pro wrestling. And in 1959, when Gorgeous George was nearing the end of his career, he was a part of one of the most iconic wrestling matches ever. It's 1959 at Maple Leaf Gardens, and Gorgeous George is set to battle Whipper Billy Watson. But this isn't a regular match. Okay, why, why isn't it regular? Okay, well, the the match is advertised with the following slogan, win or be shaved bald in the ring. So what, what? Yeah, okay, so it means that gorgeous George would have his prized golden curls shaved off in the ring. Oh, wow. Okay, upping the stakes to sell the tickets. For sure. I mean, it was really all about the money, and the huge audience watched on the CBC broadcast, and Whipper won. Oh, surprise, surprise, Whipper the hero won. And did they actually cut his hair? Uh, Yes, they shaved Gorgeous George's hair off right in front of one of the biggest crowds for an event that Toronto had ever seen. (laughs) Okay, so I'm kind of scared to ask this, but 
What exactly was happening with women at this time? And had they started wrestling yet? Or what were they doing in the world of of pro wrestling? There were a lot of women, you know, working in wrestling. But in the 50s and beyond, female wrestlers ended up doing what they call bra and panties matches. Oh, uh. Yeah. So you're about to hear from Scarlett Harris. She's a wrestling fan, a cultural critic, and the author of a great book on female pro wrestling called A Diva Was a Female Version of a Wrestler. A diva is what the WWE calls female wrestlers. Love it. You know, they're, they're not superstars, but divas. Of course. Yeah. Of course. So Scarlett explained to me what bra and panties matches were. So it's a, it's a gimmick match where um, the, the winner is the first woman to strip her opponent down to her underwear. And yeah, that's basically it. So no traditional kind of like pinfalls or submissions um, as a normal kind of wrestling match would um, end with. But yeah, the, the winner is the one that um, yeah, strips her opponent first. She told me about how difficult it is for her and other women to be fans of wrestling, a sentiment that came to a head when the hashtag Give Divas a Chance started trending. That was like a, a Twitter kind of social media movement in 20, early 2015 after a 30-second women's match. It, yeah, it was just like, you know, we're, we're sick of this. And, and, you know, it took kind of WWE uh, quite a while to actually kind of take that criticism on board and and give uh, women wrestlers more of a, um, a slice of the pie, if you will. The women's matches were 30 seconds. Oh, my God. It was bad. And that's because historically women were pushed into an eye candy valet role. What's a valet? It's like a manager, so a, a non-wrestler who accompanies a wrestler to the ring um, and, you know, might um, do a promo for them or might kind of get involved in the match, like behind the referee's back or whatever. That's where it sort of became the valet. Uh, so basically, you know, a woman in skimpy clothes accompanying the man to the ring, not unlike a sort of uh, like they have the ring girls in boxing Yeah, there were a lot of women working in wrestling, but in the 50s and beyond, female wrestlers ended up as characters that were the companions of the main event male wrestlers. Women had to wrestle and look good. There was this idea that women, you know, couldn't be too big. They had to adhere to what was considered to be feminine, and so the women that could adhere to these gender norms would be more successful. Yes, please don't have muscles or sweat while you're throwing each other around in the ring, ladies. Like, that <laughs> yeah. makes no sense whatsoever. Then yeah. you know, because it, it, you know, this all came out of the carny and, and circus performing. And right. I think that's why it was so misogynist, but also ableist. Um, you know, little people have also been involved in wrestling from early on as well, you know, just like women. Their wrestling matches were seen as a sideshow to the sideshow, if you will. Right. I mean, carnivals and sideshows have such a complicated history because, like you said, they were incredibly ableist. Many people with disabilities would be put on display and were advertised as freaks or oddities. You know, it was terrible. At the same time, many of those same people um, said that they benefited from this because they got a job and community in a time that they were facing terrible discrimination and couldn't work. So. Are there still little people involved in wrestling? 
Yes, there are. Actually, two of the most famous Canadian wrestlers were Little People, Sky Lolo and Little Beaver. Both of them were from, you guessed it, Quebec. Sky Lolo's real name was Marcel Gauthier and Little Beaver's was Lionel Giro. They started working with a promoter who came up with the idea of wrestling matches with Little People. And I know these matches were popular, but again, it's complicated because they were being paid. Yeah. But also exploited and also seen as a curiosity. You know, it's it's murky. Yeah. It's a complicated mix of like agency and exploitation. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So on top of all of that, Little Little Beaver's character was supposed to be indigenous. So let's add that to the mix. Oh. Um, yeah. He would enter oh. the ring with a headdress and a live descented skunk as a gimmick. Oh, and he wasn't indigenous. So, oh, yikes. Okay. Yeah. But they were they were a huge draw, and apparently both were really amazing acrobats. So, you know, it was an act that worked, and they traveled the world representing Canada. Were there any actual Indigenous people in wrestling, or was it just a lot of terrible cultural appropriation well, and racist well, stuff? you know, it, it, it was both. And <laughs> okay. Yeah, a, a real standout was a guy by the name of Billy Two Rivers. He is from Canabaga, Quebec, Canada, and there he is, the... Genuine, full-blooded Mohawk Indian from Quebec, 17 and a half stone of him, taking on Johnny Yearsley of Cardiff at a mere 15 stone two. Two falls to decide this six-round contest. Uh, I'm assuming that announcer meant to say Ganawake, but I don't know. I guess he tried? Yeah, he, 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 he tried. that was my generosity Um, but Billy Two Rivers he grew up in Gottawage and was spotted by a wrestler who fought under the name Chief Don Eagle Don Eagle was from Gottawage too um, and he was a really well-known wrestler who trained Billy Two Rivers his first match was in 1953 and he never looked back he was really popular, and he became a superstar in Europe. And he would play up entering the ring in a full headdress. Mohawk people, Kanyakahaga people, we don't we don't wear headdresses, but you know. You okay, know, you, okay, you do Good to know. You do. Anyway, it was a whole thing. <laughs> okay, and and so how was traveling around Europe in the '60s and '70s for an indigenous person? Well, he has said in interviews that it wasn't great at times, but overall. He was pretty beloved. He also said that the racism he experienced overseas was nothing compared to what happened in Ganasatage in 1990. Oh, man. That's terrible, Canada. So he was around for the Oka crisis. Yes, he was a council chief for Ganawage, and he was part of the group of people who negotiated over the barricades on the Mercier Bridge. Okay, so he had a whole other career after the wrestling thing. Yeah, yeah, he did. And I also read that a couple of years ago, he sued singer Van Morrison for using a picture of him on his album cover without permission. (laughs) And Universal Music settled with him out of court. Oh, nice. So still wrestling in life, in a way. Once a wrestler, always a wrestler. (laughs) Okay, so but why do you think so much of wrestling relies on these stereotypes, especially racial stereotypes? Because To be honest, that's kind of what I think about when I think of pro wrestling. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Scarlett talked about this. 
Well, I mean, after all, it, wrestling is part of a, um, you know, white supremacist um, patriarchy. It is beholden to a lot of those things, unfortunately. And, and in a way, I would say it's almost, uh, it almost magnifies those things um, because wrestling is still, um, you know, not uh, respected by polite society. And, you know, I think she's right when she says something about, you know, it being a a thing that's not respected in polite society. It really is a working class, you know, form of entertainment. And I think that's something that's carried forward. You know, there's something about professional wrestling and the wrestling world in general that seems to be, you know, a little bit slower to take up some, you know, equity and inclusion and diversity, you know, aspects. Right. So you're saying like as other forms of entertainment change and putting guidelines in wrestling, it was a little little slower and didn't get the same pressure. I got you. Exactly. And the really overt misogyny and cultural stereotypes were not often being called out as fast. It's sort of wrestling only really had its like Me Too movement um, in 2020, um, you know, whereas the rest of society kind of felt the reverberations of that like four or five years before. So, um, you know, it's almost because it's able to sort of escape traditional kind of pop cultural or um, sport. It's not really subject to the same kind of um, standards and, and guidelines and things like that. The villain was often the non-white person, and the WWE would play this up. During the war in Iraq, the big villain was the Iron Sheik. You know, there are so many bad examples, um, but wrestlers of color continued to perform. Some went all in on the stereotypes, and some tried to change things. One of the people who really changed the game for black wrestlers was Sweet Daddy Siki. Now, one great way to study sports is to study the legends of sports. And one of the great legends that was born in those days, Sweet Daddy Siki. And I spent some time with Sweet Daddy Siki this week in a boxing gym over a garage in the west end of Toronto. I watched television, watched some of the wrestling matches. They all copying me. <laughs> a lot of them are copying me, you know. The only thing, I, I don't mind them copying me if they did it well. But I'll tell you something. It's very hard, it's very hard to do it well when you're not the one who invented the whole darn thing. Because one thing I can say, there's only one Niagara Falls and there's only one Mona Lisa. And you know, there's only one Mr. Irresistible Sweet Daddy Siggy. Real Muhammad Ali, like, I'm the greatest of all time vibe. Yes, and that's because he knew him. They actually used to hang out. Oh, wow. So, yeah, Sweet Daddy Siki was a superstar. He was born in Texas uh, and started wrestling in 1955. Oh, 1955. I mean, America's still segregated at this point. So was he only wrestling other black wrestlers, or how did that work? Well, it depended. There were white wrestlers who refused to get into the ring with him because they didn't want to touch him. Um, But one of the most eye-opening stories of his career was when he went up against the world champion Buddy Rogers in Greensboro, North Carolina. Sweet Daddy Siki was the first black wrestler to try and compete for the title. But the match didn't last long because the Ku Klux Klan surrounded the ring. 
Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my. So he moved to Toronto in 1961 and stayed. His bleach blonde hair, sparkly capes, and amazing ability with words made him a huge star. He trained countless Canadian wrestlers, and he was also, you know, he also had this great drop kick, which influenced a black Canadian wrestler named Soulman Rocky Johnson. I know about him. Uh, Rocky Johnson was born in Amherst, Nova Scotia, and a lot of accounts state that, you know, the Johnsons are this long line of African Nova Scotians. And he started out as a boxer and then moved into wrestling. You know, he was doing it in the Maritimes where he donned a mask and his name was actually Sweet Ebony Diamond, which I, I really love. That is a great name. It's really good. Um, he was inspired by Sweet Daddy Siki. He became admired for his super amazing drop kicks. And in 1983, he was part of the tag team who were the first black wrestlers to win the World Tag Team Championship. It was a big deal. Rocky Johnson married into one of the most iconic wrestling dynasties when he married Atta Mayavia, who is a member of the Samoan Anoa'i family. After their son Dwayne graduated from university, he signed a contract with the CFL to play with the Calgary Stampeders, but his football career was short-lived and he eventually turned to wrestling. When Dwayne decided to call himself The Rock after his dad, the rest is history. I smell what you're cooking there, Leah. Oh, you heard it. I mean, he is the biggest, you know, movie superstar. Love him in Jumanji. (laughs) And we can take credit for that. I mean, I think the takeaway is the Calgary Stampeders made a bad choice, but a good call for the world. Well, and that makes sense, because one of The Rock's biggest mentors was Bret Hart. And we actually took an informal poll on Twitter and asked people who their favorite Canadian wrestlers were. The top two were Trish Stratus and Bret Hart. It was very scientific. It was very scientific. It was very scientific. But, you know, I thought we should verify this poll by going to a match and asking someone in person. So, Leah, I got you some tickets to a wrestling match. um, And I thought you should, yeah, take this poll in person. I've never been, so I'm... Well, okay, Leah, I want you to go to Greektown Wrestling and report back. (laughs) Okay, I'm scared and excited. I will see you back here after the the match, the game, the performance. (laughs) Bye. Test, test. Uh, Who's your favorite Canadian wrestler? The Hitman Hart. Brett the Hitman Hart. Come on. Let's get serious. Hey, favorite Canadian wrestler? Favorite Canadian wrestler? Hitman Hart. Hitman, Hitman. Happy now? There it is. <laughs> the the poll has been taken. Yes, I I I I greatly appreciate um your your dedication uh, uh to to science and history. Thank you, thank you. It was really interesting. I have to say, when I got there, there was a huge lineup, and the guy behind me was so drunk already, and he was so <laughs> loud that I. I had misgivings. I was like, should I just go? Because I don't know if I can handle mm-hmm. this kind it's of energy. But actually, it was really fun. And I, you know, obviously it's not real, but some of the moves people were doing, like there were some real hits happening. Yeah. And then the other really interesting thing is that the the star of the show was a black trans woman, which I was not expecting. 
Um, okay. And so That's really, great. it was like quite diverse. Uh, I was surprised. I was surprised. Okay. It was a lot okay. of fun. It was, it was a lot of fun. Well, you're welcome. That was my first, by the way, that was my first live show since the pandemic <laughs> began. And I went into a packed <laughs> hall full of wrestling fans. So um, I love this. Thank I you love so this. much. Thank you so mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty unanimous. There were a couple of other people that people mentioned as being their faves, but but it was mostly Bret Hart. And so I just want to know why is he so loved? Well, Nug explains. So a lot of wrestling, as we've talked about, a lot of wrestling is put on. It's a character or a costume you put on. Bret Hart was Bret Hart from Calgary. You can trace his roots to Calgary. Bret Hart was Stu Hart's son. Everybody knew Stu Hart. He ran the Calgary territory in Stampede Wrestling. Bret Hart had famous wrestling brothers, famous wrestling brothers-in-law. And Bret Hart always came out and said, I'm Bret Hart. I'm a very good wrestler. And then when you, and what's funny is in this world of giant characters, Bret was a wrestler and a good wrestler. But Bret never pretended to be anything he wasn't. Bret was... Canadian always said Calgary. And if an announcer ever said Calgary, Canada, he would correct them and say, you have to say Alberta because I don't say Los Angeles, USA. So Brett, Brett was exactly who he was all the time. I always thought it was interesting that he wore hot pink, actually. Well, he was in a tag team and they used to wear black with a blue stripe. And it was his partner who said, we need to figure out how to get the crowd to hate us. Let's get some crowd booze and stuff just from what we're wearing. Let's change that blue stripe to a hot pink. And Brett was like, uh, okay. And the first time they came out wearing pink, that crowd hated them. Guys, we're in pink. Get out of here. And Brett was just like, oh, this is great. And it became his thing. They wore pink all the time. And even when the tag team broke up and Brett went on his own, he still wore hot pink. So, But how did Bret Hart end up working in the WWE? I know he comes from this famous Hart family mm-hmm. that ran Stampede Wrestling, which is a show in Calgary. So how did he how did he end up in this big show? Well, remember all of those territories we talked about earlier? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they all became one big company. Um, there was this American guy by the name of Vince McMahon who ran what he called the WWWF, the World Wide Wrestling Federation. He ended up selling the company over to his son, Vince McMahon Jr. Okay, I've heard of this mm-hmm. man. Okay. Mm-hmm. Vince Jr. took over his dad's company and started buying up the territories and getting all the talent or signing great talent away from a territory so that they couldn't make money anymore. And then when they weren't making money anymore, Vince went, why don't I just buy your territory and help you out? And then that territory got bigger. So like, you know, in Calgary, it was always Stampede. But then when Stu Holt stole Stampede Wrestling to Vince, now WWF's on TV in Calgary. Vince Jr. renamed his dad's company by removing one of the W's, and it became the WWF. And eventually, that became WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, which is what it is called today. So this is why many Canadians were in and still remain in pro wrestling. Canadian territories were bought up and then folded into the WWE. I get it now. Yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways, it was a big corporate takeover. You know, there were and still are indie wrestling circuits. But the big time, you know, it all ends with Vince McMahon and the WWE. And a big moment in the popularity of wrestling came in 1985 with the first ever WrestleMania on pay-per-view. Okay, so what what number WrestleMania are they on now? 
38. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. There, there, and there are still, you know, Canadians in the headliner events like The Edge and Kevin Owen. Aren't you? Oh, aren't you just the wrestling encyclopedia all of a sudden? I am <laughs> uh, because of this episode. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> at at the moment, um, three of the women's champions in the WWE are all black women. So we've got Bianca Belair, who won the Raw Women's Championship from Becky Lynch at WrestleMania a few weeks ago um, in a in a you know, interesting storyline that kind of went on for the last six months or so. Um, And then we've got um, Naomi and Sasha Banks. They won the Women's Tag Team Championships together at WrestleMania as well. So we've got like three black women on top of the industry, which is, you know, pretty unheard of. Okay, very cool. So maybe I need to reconsider my biases against wrestling. So we mentioned... Uh, that from our poll, there were two people that um, everyone picked as their favorite Canadians. So let's talk about Trish Stratus. Why is she such a legend? Well, Trish was born in Toronto to a Greek family. Her full name is actually Patricia Strategius. Um, And a lot of people consider her to be the total package pro wrestler. She's a great athlete. She's a good character actor. And she's beautiful. Uh, It's also because people saw her evolution, you know. And like most female wrestlers, it was a hard road. She started in the year 2001 and... This was around the time when Scarlett started watching wrestling. Trish Stratus was in a storyline with Vince McMahon, who is the owner of WWE, both on screen and in real life. Um, And she was his mistress. Um, And um, yeah, at some stage in the storyline, he uh, dressed her down quite literally in the ring um, and got and asked her to get down on all fours and start barking like a dog. Um, So this was quite an infamous kind of um, segment in wrestling history. And I'd never actually watched it in its entirety until I was researching the book. Yeah, it was quite um, full on. And I don't know how uh, they were able to get away with it at the time, but obviously it was it was a different time and women were, yeah, treated like that in wrestling on a pretty regular basis. Oh, wow. That's... So Vince McMahon is not great. He is not a good man. Oh, uh, God, no, he's not. I mean, we would have to do a whole other six episodes to get into that, and I don't want to... I don't want to stay there. Um, But what you should know is that the WWE has writers who come up with the storylines. But all of them, all of the storylines, they have to be approved by Vince McMahon. And unfortunately, it's pretty common for women to start out like this in, you know, some terrible role. Yeah, so um, just after that... um dog barking segment um i believe she kind of went off tv for a bit and was able to actually train as a wrestler um you'd be surprised how many women wrestlers um weren't actually trained as wrestlers it was more just get in there and like you know pull some hair for a few minutes so yeah she was able to actually go away and start um actually training and ended up coming back later that year and won the women's championship at the end of 2001 I think what really kind of separated her at the time was that she was one of the few women that were actually allowed to go off and get that training. And it just goes to show that like um, 
you know, when you actually invest that in your athletes, um, that they can like, there's so much that they, that, that they can actually do. Okay. So she had the opportunity that a lot of other women before her didn't have, which was just training and time. And yeah, that makes sense that she, you know, becomes this standout wrestler. And she was also fun, right? Scarlett talks about seeing her play out this match with a mirror. They they were able to bring in like um, trash cans and like street signs and stuff to hit each other with. And I think um, one of the objects was a mirror um, because of the storyline between the two women at the time where Victoria was like a crazy stalker um, because, you know, there's only so many stereotypes that women could fit into at the time. So they, uh, there was a mirror that um, I think Trish ended up smashing over um, Victoria's head. Um, and, and I think that that's another kind of interesting exploration of um, that kind of, uh, you know, women are beautiful, but they're also able to like smash you with like <laughs> trash can lids and stuff like that. What woman hasn't wanted to smash someone with a trash can lid? I mean, really? Especially right I mean, now. You ha- like yeah, you haven't? <laughs> oh, yeah, you exactly. must try. You <laughs> must, you must. Oh, you must. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when you boil it all down, the Canadian wrestlers who are dominating the field today all have one thing in common. I, I honestly think it's, I really do think it's our sense of humor. But also, we don't take ourselves as seriously as Americans. Americans are very like, oh, I'm American. How dare you? And then, like, we're like, that's oh, fine, guys, relax. You can make fun of Canada. We'll go, ha, you're right. Like nobody's, nobody really freaks out. And so Canadians, I think, really gravitate towards pro wrestling because if you don't take that seriously, it's the greatest thing in the world. What a show, what a time. You can go and throw peanuts at the, well, you used to be able to throw peanuts at the bad guy. But, uh, you know, you can go boo the bad guy and cheer for the good guy and start a chant and high five your buddy and have a drink and go get a hot dog. And like, it's a show you're in and- There's nothing better than you watching a show and someone in the ring telling you all to shut up and then you go, oh yeah, well now I'm going to talk. Like it's, it's you as an audience are part of the show with pro wrestling. The Secret Life of Canada was recorded in Jotjage, also known as Montreal, the territory of the Gagnac-Cahaga, and Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by me, Leah Simone-Bowen, and me, Phelan Johnson, research assistance by Andrea Eidinger, story editing by Yvette Nolan, with mixing and sound design by Braden Alexander. Our logo is by Badawogan Illustration and Design. Our digital producer is Roshni Nair. Senior producer is Tina Verma. And Arif Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.